you know, it's interesting when God's kingdom invades, whether that be your life or whether that be this world, um, the unthinkable not only becomes thinkable, it becomes the only thing you can think about. When God's kingdom invades, the unthinkable not only becomes thinkable, it becomes the only thing you can think about. Uh, the best example I can think of that is, is my own um, experience in, in getting saved and having God um, grow me as a Christian. And if you would have told me when I was you know, 16 or, or whatever that, um, that God was going to become the entirety of my life, that he was going to invade every part of my life, I'd say, no, nah, that's not what I want. You're crazy. That's not what I'm looking for. In fact, that's what kept me from getting saved for a long time. I didn't want God to get his hands into my life. I was good with me running things myself, right? Uh, I didn't want his uh, controlling hands in my life. And, and the last thing I wanted to do was to give my life completely over to, to Jesus. Um, but then in an instant, something happened. You know, Jesus got a hold of my life, got a hold of my heart. And from that point forward, it's just been this increasing and increasing and increasing in his, his kingdom and his life and his presence and his love expanding in my life to greater and to greater and to greater degrees. Every corner of my life. You guys don't know that, uh, that, that, that foam stuff that you spray into the cracks in your wall. It's sort of like to seal and keep things out. It's like that. It's just this little tube. You spray a little bit in and all of a sudden it just starts expanding and expanding and expanding. It fills out all the cracks. That's what Jesus does in believers. He comes in in a seemingly small moment in your life and he, he transforms you, but then he begins to expand in your life. And Jesus talked about this when he described the kingdom, didn't he? He said the kingdom is like leaven. It's just this little bit of powder that you put into the dough. But that little bit of powder causes the bread to expand and to grow. He said the kingdom is like a small seed. It's just this little thing, but, but you put it in the ground, it begins to grow and grow and grow, and it creates this giant plant. He said that's how the kingdom expands. Now, whether he's talking about his own life and the expansion of the church, or whether he's talking about you, the second you said yes to Christ and he started to grow in your life, the reality is true. The kingdom of God expands. It expands in your life. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is we're seeing that expansion. We're seeing something that was very small, very nuclear, very, very, very small, but it's growing and it's growing and growing, just like Jesus you know, said that it was. And, and sometimes these really microscopic moments in our life actually end up being the largest moments. We just don't realize it right away, right? Sometimes, like think about our culture. Think about the moment maybe someone discovered electricity, you know, oh, brilliant, this is interesting. I found this, this thing, right? Um, and, and now look, fast forward the clock uh, and, and see how much electricity has shaped our culture. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to escape it unless you, you, know, you go off to some, some country that doesn't have it. But, but ultimately, this, this tiny little discovery has entirely shaped our... Think about the smartphone. Think about the computer. First computer probably wasn't that big a deal. Most people probably didn't even know it was out there, Right? But now we're all carrying one in our phone. In fact, if you didn't know better, if you brought somebody from the ancient world into they'd probably think it was our God <laughs> because we're staring at it all the time and it glows. You know, I mean, in reality, like these little tiny microscopic discoveries have actually bloomed to become the, the, some of the, the greatest formative um, realities of our lives and culture. And, that, and that's really what's happening. In, our, in chapter 10, we're seeing this seemingly really small moment of Peter who's hungry on a rooftop. And, and all of a sudden, God takes that moment, and he, and he uses it to explode the kingdom. The kingdom explodes um, out of this, this place that it was in all throughout the ancient worlds. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, and really, I don't, I don't have a big imperative for you guys at the end. I don't have a big, hey, now let's all go do this. Uh, this morning's sermon is a declarative sermon. 
Look what God did. Look what God's doing. We just celebrate that and rejoice in that. Now, before we get into the chapter 10 and get into the text, and it's a fairly large chunk of text, but we'll move through it quickly. Before we get into the text, there's some things I need to tell you guys. Okay, now, if you picked up a book uh, about World War II, let's say, in Normandy Beach, and, and you read it, and that, that could be very interesting, but if you didn't have a clue what World War II was, and you didn't know why the Germans were fighting us, and you didn't know why America was invading, you, you would be really confused, right? So in the same way, if we just jump into chapter 10 without understanding some of the context of what's going on here, um, some things are going to be um, maybe not confusing, but just not as powerful as they should be. So by way of introduction, three things that I need you to understand before we jump into this text, okay? Three things I need you to understand before we jump into this text. The first thing is, is that God desired Israel and, and his people in general to be set apart. He desired them to be set apart. And understanding that really helps you a lot when you're reading the Old Testament, because there's some really strange things in there, okay? Some really strange things that you might read and go, that just seems so random. But you need to understand that God's heart for His people, both then and now, is that we be set apart. We be holy. Now, the word holy doesn't necessarily just mean don't do bad things or don't sin. The word holy literally means set apart. It means that, that God took a people group and He pulled them out of this world, and he made them set apart. Everything that Israel was to have done was to be different than the world. That was the purpose of their existence. God pulled them out to be holy, right? This is God's desire. His people need to, um, they need to uh, validate their message by uh, being set apart. His people are intrinsically bound to his name. So when his people are in sin or his people are worldly, it actually affects his name. So God cares about his name. He does. So he set Israel apart, and he did that in a lot of different ways. He did it primarily through the law. If you read the book of Leviticus and the Pentateuch, the first five books, you learn about how God set apart his people. And a lot of them are really strange. A lot of them have to do with things that you couldn't eat. A lot of them had to do with things that you couldn't touch. There's things in there that, that that's even puzzle some people today, like you weren't allowed to get tattoos, you weren't allowed to shave the sides of your head. And there's lots of reasons for these things, and some of the reasons were that these were pagan customs, not things that are inherently in and of themselves evil. They were things that, that, the, that the Egyptians did or that the Babylonians did, and they had um, pagan practices attached to them. Some of them had to do just simply with God wanting to give them a way to show that they were faithful to Yahweh. Don't eat this food because I said not to. And because by not eating that food, you're showing that you're different. You see a good example of that in the book of Daniel, where Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they get taken into this, this Babylonian place, and they're, um, they're asked uh, to, to, to basically become like the Babylonians, and they refuse to eat the food. And what's happening? They're, they're showing their holiness. They're showing that they're set apart. They're showing that they're different. That was the whole point. Okay, now, that's the first thing I want you to understand. Everybody got that? The second thing I want you to understand not only is Israel to be set apart, Israel became predictably racist and nationalistic because of this. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? You know, you, you, there's something unique about you that God's given you. Maybe, you, maybe you, give, you ever do this with your kids, you give them a particular privilege, and, and it's really just because you, you love them, but you love all your kids, and you give one kid a particular privilege, and what does that kid immediately do? I am the loved one, <laughs> right? I'm the special kid. That's the reality. That's what Israel did. God said, there's nothing special about you, Israel. In fact, uh, when I found you, you were, you, well, we don't need to get into that, but when I found you, you were, you were basically just a, 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 a prostitute laying in the, in, in the ground. I took you and I adopted you and I gave you clothes. You were naked. You were off uh, sleeping with other gods and I took you and I made you my daughter. 
So there's nothing special about Israel. Um, God made Israel special by his love, and then he gave them this particular boundaries. But what did Israel start to do? They started to think, hey, we are pretty special. We are really something here. Those Gentiles, those, those Gentiles were eating bacon, <laughs> you know, these, these guys, these worshiping their idols, these guys are terrible. So they became this real nationalistic, racist kind of an idea about the Gentiles that was never God's intention. In fact, it might surprise you to know that God not only set Israel apart to be holy, he set them apart to be on mission. God selected Israel for the purpose of the nations. They were to be a light to the nations. Everything that Jesus was, they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be a fruit-yielding vine, a vineyard that brought delight to the world, that the world would look at Israel and go, wow, there's something about these guys. Oh, what is it? It's Yahweh. But instead, they became the darkness. Instead, they looked like the nations, adopted their idols, and at the same time, remained prideful, looking at the nations as though they were somehow less important than themselves. Now, this is a two-way street, of course. The Gentiles would mock the Jews, Right? These idiots, they don't even have a God in their temple. It's just a big empty space. <laughs> what are they worshiping? Air? Right? I mean, they, they, they thought the Jews were ridiculous. They thought they were hilarious. So there was really so much animosity um, to different levels. Obviously, there was animosity between the Judean Jews and the Samaritan Jews. But even on a more so, there was major animosity between Jews and Gentiles. They just didn't get along. There's nothing's changed. You go to Israel, it's the same thing. Okay, you have the Arabs and the, the Hasidic Jews, and they can't stand each other. They make fun of it. They think they're each other's ridiculous. So this is, this is nothing's changed. This is what, what the climate is, is 2,000 years ago when chapter 10 in Acts comes. Now, now, the third thing I need you to know is not only is God's desire for Israel to be set apart, and not only, is God, uh, not only did they become prideful and arrogant over that, but God's plan has always been for the nations. It's always been for the nations. It's not as though, you know, he tried with Israel and Israel screwed up and he said, you know, these guys, they're lame. I'm going to go find someone else. It's not the truth. It's not the fact. God selected Israel for the nations. God's plan has always been the nations. We see this in the beginning of Genesis in the cultural mandate when God tells man that they are to go and fulfill this mandate by filling the earth, by, by procreating um, with God-bearing image bearers, image bearers, they're to fill the earth um, with, with people that are going to glorify God. That was always God's plan. God's plan A was an earth filled with people that would bear his image and glorify him, the nations. Okay, then we see the Abrahamic covenant, which is one of the most important covenants in the Bible. Okay, the Abrahamic, by the way, Abraham was a Gentile. He was selected and then he became the first Jew. Do you know that? That's why he's our father of faith. He was the first one to believe before there was Judaism, before there was circumcision. So, it, so God selects Abraham and he gives him this promise and the promise is that through your lineage will come a nation that will what? Bless the whole earth. It always was God's plan. In Revelation 5, 9 and 10, says they sing a new song. Now this is at the end here. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by the blood of your ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. So God's plan from beginning to end has always included the nations. It's always been his goal. It's always been his point. We see this in the book of Jonah. Okay? You ever think about that? Why is God sending a Jewish prophet to Assyria? It's like the worst place you can imagine. 
Now, if you've seen VeggieTales, just get the fish slopping out of your head. It's way worse than that. Okay, everyone that hasn't seen that, it's like, what are you talking about? In VeggieTales, they're bad because they slap each other with fishes, you know? Uh, these were terrible people, the worst. And God sends this prophet Jonah to who? To the Gentiles. He's sending Jonah to the Gentiles. In the law, God strategically made sure that there were all of these laws for what were called sojourners, people that would come in that were foreigners into the land. And he made sure that the Jews in no ways took advantage of these people. He was always considering the nations. And no, nowhere more so than the inauguration of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate picture of God's desire for the nations. The ultimate picture. In John chapter 10, listen to what Jesus says, verse 15. He says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, those are his people, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, when he gives the great commission, what does he say? Go and make disciples of what? All nations. All nations. It's always been God's desire. Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus comes, the ascended Lord. He, he gives them instructions. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The concentric circles. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to grow. It's going to expand out of Jerusalem into Judea, the southern part of Israel, into the northern part, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. That was exactly what is happening. That's exactly what God said would happen, and that's exactly what's unfolding in Acts. Now, flip really quickly to Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Keep your finger in Acts. Matthew chapter 8. I need you to see something here in the life and ministry of Christ. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a what? Centurion. Can everybody say that, please? Okay, remember that. A centurion came forward to him. By the way, a centurion is, is a, a, a commander of about 100 Roman soldiers. Okay. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus is eager to come and heal this man. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Interesting. Just remember that. I'm not worthy to have you come under my... This is a Gentile man speaking to a Jewish rabbi. And he's saying, you're not worthy. I, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. So, so he says, just speak. Speak and, and, and you'll be healed, right? For I too am a man, verse 9, under authority and with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes to my servant. Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, listen to this, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Speaking about a Gentile, this guy takes the cake. He's the winner. He's got the most faith out of everyone he's encountered in Israel. I tell you, many will come from east and west. What's he talking about? The nations, the Gentiles. From east 
and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, that's Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Interesting. So we have Jesus interacting with a centurion, a Gentile, and we have Jesus saying, this Gentile has greater faith than everyone I've encountered in Israel. We also have this centurion saying, I'm not worthy for you to be in my house. And it's a centurion. I just want you to remember all three of those things. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Matthew 27, when Jesus is on the cross, it's really interesting because after he, he, he dies and he, he cries out to the Lord and the sun is darkened and, and there's this oh shoot moment that the Roman guards have and they look up and they see the sun darkened and they go, what did we just do? Do you know who speaks? It's a centurion. It's not the same one, but it's a centurion. What are the odds of that? A centurion, Jesus encounters there. And the first Gentile, the first outsider, the first one from the nations to recognize the Messiahship, Lordship, Sonship, Godship of Jesus is a centurion. What does he say? Behold, this was the Son of God. It's as though the moment Jesus takes his last breath, the Spirit of God has broken out of the Holy of Holies upon the nations. And instantly this guy is made aware of a reality. Have you ever thought about that? And we think about the veil being torn, the curtain being torn. We think about, yeah, now we can get into the Holy of Holies. But we don't have to think about the fact that when the veil was torn, the Holy of Holies got out. Have <laughs> you thought about that? Jesus takes his breath and now the Spirit of God is out. The glory of God is out. It's free. It's going to the centurion. And he is realizing and recognizing that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, here's the question for us this morning that we're going to hopefully answer in chapter 10. The question is, how do these three things all work together? The fact that God desires his people to be holy, the fact that these people are entirely racist, and also the fact that God's desire is for the nations. How do those three things all come together so that God sort of brings this nationalistic church, this nationalistic kingdom he's trying to build? How does that happen? And the answer is in three answers, and that's going to be the outline for our text. So go back to Acts chapter 10. And the answers are this. I'll give them to you now. You can write them down. Uh, number one, a new freedom. Verses 1 through 33. Number two, a new covenant. And number three, a new family. Okay? So let's just run through those. Peter, we picked him up, uh, or we left him off last week in verse 43 of chapter 9. He was staying in Joppa, which... Interestingly, this is just a freebie, okay? Interestingly, Joppa is the place where, uh, where uh, Jonah said, I'm not going to go minister to the Gentiles. And he hopped, a, he hopped a ship and took off. Interestingly, this is the place where God tells Peter he's going to go minister to the Gentiles. <laughs> kind of weird, right? It's just a freebie, okay? So, so Peter's at the house of this man Simon, who's a tanner. That doesn't mean that he laid out in the sun all day. Uh, it meant that he actually took the carcass of animals and turned them into leather, um, so interesting place for this to happen uh, that would have been a place that would have rendered you ceremonially unclean, and Peter doesn't seem to mind. So God's already doing some work in Simon Peter. Uh, and in verse 1, in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. What is Cornelius? He's a centurion. Isn't that crazy? He's a centurion. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. I don't know what's up with the centurion thing, but I just thought it was interesting. Okay, I don't know what's up with it, but regardless, there's something God is connecting here in all these passages. 
And it has to do with God's inclusion of the Gentiles and the nations. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So, so Cornelius is a pretty good guy. He, he's a commander in a, of a Roman, uh, he's a Roman centurion. He commands 100 people. He lives in Caesarea, which is in Judea, on the coast, on the Mediterranean. Beautiful place. I got to visit there when I went to Israel. And in the Mediterranean, is just like the bluest water you've ever seen. This would have been a city that the Jews absolutely would have hated because it was 70% Gentile. It's where the Roman, uh, Roman armies that would be governing over Judea would basically be stayed. The garrison of Roman soldiers would stay there. So this man, Cornelius, he's in Caesarea, He's a godly man. He's a generous man. He's a prayerful man. There's a, the word here, God-fearer, is a kind of a technical term in that time. It, it was any Gentile, non-Jew, who basically worshipped Yahweh but was not circumcised. So, so they sign on to Yahweh as God, but they have not yet gone the full, kind of the full proselyte view. So this is a God-fearing man. In verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Isn't that interesting? That Cornelius' prayers have ascended as a memorial before God. It's like, it's like the incense in the temple. I mean, this is a sweet-smelling aroma to the prayers of the saints. God is hearing and being affected by the prayers of this godly Gentile. And now... Uh, Verse 5, now send men to Joppa and bring one named Simon, that's Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and devout soldiers from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so we have Cornelius in the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock, praying to the Lord. The Lord hears his prayer, and God uh, sends an angel to him, giving him this message that he, he needs to go to Joppa, find this guy named Peter, okay? Uh, and so what does Cornelius do? He's a busy man. He has people at his, his hands. He sends his servants to Joppa, would have been north, north up to Joppa to get Peter and to bring him back. Um, that's essentially what's happening here. Now, verse nine, the next day, as they were on their journey. So the camera pans from Caesarea over to Joppa. The next day when Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that's lunchtime, to pray. Now, I love this. Just a side note. Both times when God encounters these men, they're both praying. <laughs> they're both praying. You know, not to, not to say that God can't speak when we're not praying or when we're not seeking him, but it just so happens that when God speaks to both of these men is when they're already seeking him. Okay, so, so there's just some truth to that. Um, so Peter goes up on his roof. Now, don't think roof like we have. That would be extremely uncomfortable and, and not a very spiritual place to sit on your yoga mat and pray or whatever, right? So that's not the kind of roof. This is a flat roof in Palestine. It was a place that you could go kind of retreat to. It was a place that Peter probably spent a lot of time up there. It was kind of his prayer closet. Um, so he goes up about lunchtime, and he's, he's praying up there. In verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. Now, you couldn't just go put a hot pocket, you know, in the, the, the microwave. Like, like we all would, right? No, no. Okay, uh, so, so there's a little bit of a, of a gap here between them preparing the food for him and he's sitting up there just his, his stomach's growling as he's praying. Um, but while they were preparing it, verse 10, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. Now those words should bring some familiarity into your mind. The heavens opened. Okay, the heavens were opened when Isaac um, saw the Son of Man, uh, the ladder, and, and we, he saw, he saw, pardon me, the ladder in, 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 in God, um, 
and his angels sort of coming up and down this ladder. The, the heavens were open when Stephen was being stoned, and he looks up and he sees the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Okay, so, so this is a, a moment where God is about to speak. God is about to reveal something um, powerful here. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and it were and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common. That word common is the koine, or the Greek word koine. It's where we get our word koinonia, community, commonality, community. Um, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once. So imagine this. Peter's up on this rooftop praying. He sees this vision. He gets into this trance where this sheet from heaven comes down. Heaven's opened up. And in the sheet are all of these unclean animals. Now, now maybe you're saying, what's an unclean animal? Okay. Uh, in the law, we've alluded to this a little bit before, God had specifically said that there were particular animals that were not to be eaten. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a random list, but when you read it, you're like, yeah, those are probably not the best animals to eat anyways. But God gave these particular rules within the Mosaic Covenant about what was to be eaten and what was not to be eaten. Now, you need to understand something here. Okay. When God gave the law to the Jews. There were three different basically kinds of sections of, to that law. Three, if you, could, you could divide those laws into three. The first is what we could call the moral law. These are laws that, that, are, that are sort of obvious. Don't kill someone. <laughs> don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Uh, don't steal, sort of the Ten Commandments. Those are the, the obvious laws. There was another tier to those laws, and that was um, considered the... Uh, hold on, let me find my place in my notes here. Uh, Oh, man, so embarrassing. Okay, here we go. Um, the second tier was the, uh, what was called the civil laws. These were the laws that just helped them know how to function as people uh, in a nation. They were a theocracy, a nation ruled by God, okay? Civil laws. The third tier was something called the ceremonial laws or the dietary laws, okay? Now, these are random laws. These were all the things that if you did them, all of a sudden you would be considered ceremonially unclean, okay? So if you were a woman on your menstrual cycle, or if you slept with your wife on her menstrual cycle, or if you had an issue of disease, any kind of blood, anything to do with blood, if you touched a dead body, if you ate a certain kind of animal, um, and you're thinking, that's so random. You know, what's the purpose of that? Um, and basically, God was trying to show these guys, not that, that it was somehow sinful to be on your menstrual cycle, or it was somehow sinful to eat a certain kind of animal. That wasn't the point. The point was God was trying to illustrate just how severe in, uh, sin is. He was trying to give them tangible physical objects that he could say, look, this is what sin's like. And if you touch this thing, it's not that it's sin, it's that it is a picture of sin, and you need to go be ceremonially cleansed before you come into the temple or be in the presence of God. That was the point of those. Okay? It had to do with a particular covenant that God had made with Israel in that point. So, so Peter is looking up and he sees these animals that he knows he's not supposed to eat. And then this voice from heaven is saying, go and eat it. And you can tell by Peter's reaction, he's completely surprised, but he's just confused by this. Why would I go eat this? Lord, I've never eaten anything like that before. I mean, Peter wasn't a Pharisee, but he was a good Jewish boy growing up. He knew better. He knew not to eat those. And he basically says, Lord, why would I go do that? And then God's answer, of course, is do not call unclean what I've called, or common what I've called clean. Now, this is really interesting. It's all kind of confusing. 
What is, this, what, is this, what is the point of this symbol? What is the point of this? Is, is this, is this uh, what is this telling Peter? Okay, now, there's two ways you could take this. One is the symbolic interpretation, which is to say the sheet is the church, and there's multiple types of animals in there, and God's point is that the church and the, gen- or the Gentiles and the Jews will be made up of the church, that there's really no distinction anymore between the two. They're all part of it, and it's all very symbolic. Now, that, that may be true, and that's probably partly uh, implied there. But I think more commonly is just the really straightforward interpretation. Peter, you get to eat that stuff now. <laughs> okay, I, just, I think that's what he's saying. I don't think there's some kind of a declaration that Gentiles are now clean. Why do I think that? Gentiles were never unclean. They were never, there was never some kind of a barrier keeping Gentiles from God. There was always a covenant of grace that Gentiles could get to God through. There was always an avenue, always an opportunity for Gentiles to be saved. I think the point here is that, which is our first point, is that God is simply bringing a new freedom to the Jews so that now they can go evangelize. There's been a roadblock. There's been something keeping them from going into the homes of the Gentiles, having meals with Gentiles, having relationships with Gentiles, and that has been this fear that they might somehow become ceremonially unclean. And, And God from heaven is now saying, hey, don't worry about that anymore. Don't worry about that anymore. It's not as though God is saying, hey, uh, you know, I've changed my mind about what I think is right or wrong. It's that there's a new covenant in force. The Mosaic covenant is no longer in force. He's lifting a curtain. Think about it like this. When the Iron Curtain was lifted, okay, in the Soviet world, for, for a long time, Christians were not allowed to bring the gospel into these areas. Now, it's not as though these people were unclean. The gospel just was not able to, to be brought in there as easily, Right? The Gentiles had always been getting saved. We have all kinds of examples of Gentiles getting saved in the Old Testament. But now the curtain has been lifted. Now the Jews, without having to worry about ceremonial cleansing because Christ's perfection has been imputed to them, they can go and have a meal and have some bacon with some Gentiles. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. Man, this, if, if there was a chapter, uh, you know, this chapter is, if because of this we can have bacon. I'm just so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that, right? That's the simple, the, the simple understanding of really what's happening here. And Jesus had already been teaching about this. If you remember in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 7, you might write it down. Jesus is getting grief from the Pharisees. Hey, why don't you guys wash their hands? Uh, you know, and he's not talking about germs. He's talking about ceremonially. Why don't you guys wash their hands? And Jesus goes, don't, don't you, you don't get it. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out, out of the abundance of the heart. It's evil that comes out of our heart. You know, you, just because you ate shellfish doesn't mean that you've somehow brought evil into your life. That wasn't the point of that law. The point of the law was to set them apart from the nations, okay? It's what comes out of you that needs to be cleansed. It's what comes out of you that's evil. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, way before we even get to Acts chapter 10, he had already said, look, eat whatever you want. It literally says in Mark chapter 7, he did this declaring all foods clean. So Jesus had already said this. What, what God is doing is he's catching Peter up with what he'd missed. Peter, don't forget. Okay, don't forget that when some visitors come knocking on your door in just about 10 seconds, and they're Gentiles, and they want you to come into the house of a Gentile. Remember I said the centurion early didn't want Jesus to come into his house? Because he knew he was, he would, it was unclean to do that. Don't forget, Peter, when they come to your house, you can go with them. The curtain has been lifted. There's a new freedom. So that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent 
by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright man, a God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by the holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. So there's nothing holding Peter back at this point. He can go with these guys and go meet Cornelius. Now keep going. This is a lot of text, but it's really good. The next day he rose and went with them. Some of his brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them. Cornelius is no doubt eager for Peter to come and hear what he has to say. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together all of his relatives and all of his close friends, and they're all crammed in his house. Okay, verse 25, Peter entered Cornelius, met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. You can just see Cornelius is so eager to ascribe worship and glory here that he falls down at Peter's feet. Okay, and Peter, of course, responds, lifts him up and says, stand up. I'm just a man. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with them, he went on and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone or another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common, koine, or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. Okay, so Peter basically is saying, here I am, and I wouldn't even be here if I hadn't had a vision about 20 minutes ago telling me that I could be here. God is just orchestrating this whole event, right? He's lifting this curtain. He's saying, you can go, you can in, in, enter the house of all these Gentiles who have ham on their breath, and you can actually enter into relationship with them. In verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. He's just going to retell the story. At the ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Question. Question. If Cornelius is such a good guy, he's already praying to God, He's already giving alms. He's already generous. Okay? He's worshiping Yahweh. If he's already such a good guy, why is it so important that Peter come all the way to Caesarea to sit down and explain something to them? I mean, isn't this kind of a, seem funny? I mean, if someone's worshiping God, does it really matter? I mean, they're worshiping God. Who cares? I mean, if, it, if it's not, maybe not the exact, precise, you know, gospel, does it really matter? Yes, it matters. <laughs> It matters that they get the gospel. If it didn't matter, God wouldn't have orchestrated this entire thing and sent Peter, the apostle, all the way down to explain the gospel. Okay, my point here is really simple. The gospel really matters. It's not as though we can just say, well, he's worshiping God or a God or some God. Let's just let him roll with that. It's very important that this man, Cornelius, understand the gospel. The gospel is what will set him free. The gospel is what will bring power. The gospel is what will transform him and all of the Gentiles and nothing short of the gospel, nothing less than the gospel. And that's exactly what Peter's about to launch into here in his sermon. Are you ready for it? It's one of, I think, one of the favorite sermons that Peter preaches in the book of Acts. So Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly, I understand that God no, shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter opens his sermon by saying essentially this, I understand that God is the God of all. He's the God of the Jews and of the Gentiles. I understand that we aren't saved because we're Jews. We are saved because of faith. Homework, write it down. Romans chapter 4. The entire chapter is about this very idea. Paul is explaining the fact that anyone who is saved is saved because of faith through the covenant that is in force at the time. Okay? So that's the beginning of Peter's sermon. And as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now here's the key. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Listen, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You're saying, why is that important? Okay, it says in the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, on the cross, made himself cursed. Now, when you go into the temple, or you would have gone into the temple in those days, there was a place called the court of the Gentiles. And and it was separated from the court of the Jews. And, and, And a Gentile was never, even a proselyte, was never allowed to go into the holy place. Definitely not the Holy of Holies. There was always a, a, a disconnect there. So Gentiles could be saved, but there was always something keeping them out. Why? Because they were considered removed from God's presence. Jesus, on the cross, what is he doing? He's becoming a Gentile so that the Gentile can become the Jew. Jesus is being cursed so that the cursed can be Forgiven, so that the curse can be made righteous. It's really similar to what happened when Jesus is walking uh, along the street and this woman with an issue of blood. Do you remember that story? This woman who wouldn't have been able to go into the temple for, for years because she was considered unclean ceremonially. And she reaches out and she touches the garment of Jesus. And instead of him becoming defiled, what happens? She becomes clean. See, instead of her transferring her uncleanness to him, his cleanness is transferred to her. This is a picture of the gospel. She is made clean. Why? Because he is about to be made unclean. Because the cross is the uncleanness being transferred to Jesus, so his cleanness is transferred to those that are unclean. The reason that these Gentiles now can be in the same room is because now the cleanness of Christ has been transferred to them. Jesus has become separated so that they can become included. Isn't that amazing? The cursed became righteous because the righteous became cursed. It's beautiful. It's incredible. In verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him, made him to appear. He's not a dead savior. He's not a dead sacrifice. He's a risen, reigning Lord. 41, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. In other words, he was plan A from the beginning. There was no plan B for the Gentiles. Plan A for the Gentiles was Christ. It's always been Christ. Plan A for the Jews has been Christ. It's always been Christ. All the prophets pointed forward to this Jesus. What an astounding thing. So the first reason 
God is able to bring these together is because of a new freedom. The second reason is because of a new covenant. There is now a new covenant. And that new covenant is through Jesus Christ. You see, it's not that God just said to the Gentiles, yeah, you don't need to worry about all those laws. We'll give you a pass. You know, like Monopoly, like just pass, go. You know, just, just go around the whole board. It's not, it's not that he was saying that. He was saying the Gentiles get Jesus' perfect game imputed to them. It's not, that they don't, it's not that God changed his mind about what is right or wrong. It's that Jesus lived what was right and gave it perfectly to them. It was imputed to them, a new covenant. And number three, a new family. A new family. Look at verse 44. This is so cool. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. <laughs> I just, I, because we're all Gentiles, I just can't read that with enough inflection for you to get how crazy this is. Okay, let me just try. Let me see if I can do it. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Okay, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. It's just not enough. It's crazy. Do you understand that God's Spirit lived in a place where if someone went in and was even slightly ceremonially unclean, who had to be a Jew, had to be a Levite, had to be groomed for this, they would fall down dead because the Spirit of God would strike them. And Peter's sitting here in a Gentile house full of Romans, and the Spirit of God falls in the place. The Holy of Holies is now in that house. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. Peter and these guys are just like, what is happening here? You know, this is a Gentile Pentecost. If you look back through the book of Acts, what do you see? You see the Pentecost of the Jews. Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Thousands get saved. Holy Spirit comes. You get baptized. And then in Samaria, what happens? A Samaritan Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes. Samaritans get saved, which was astounding, by the way. Half-bloods, half-Jews. Now, what do we see here? A Gentile Pentecost. <laughs> it's astounding. It's crazy. The Holy Spirit, His presence is living in the Gentiles. It's incredible. That always happens. I need to... Okay. 47 and 48. Look what happens. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? In other words, would anyone dare at this point say these guys don't deserve to be part of our covenant community? Well, the answer is yeah. <laughs> Read the rest of the book of Acts. The Jews fought this tooth and nail. Most of Paul's letters were combating people that were saying these Gentiles need to be circumcised. Okay? So can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's where the new family idea comes in. Not only is there a new freedom which led to this opportunity, not only is there a new covenant which, which includes these Gentiles, but now there's a new family. See, when these guys get baptized, this is the new symbol. See, circumcision in the Old Testament was the symbol of the family of Israel. What is it in the New Testament? It's baptism. Baptism is the symbol that they now belong to the body of Christ. And so these guys being baptized is saying that we are all part of one family, Jews and Gentiles. Paul sums it up in Ephesians 2. For though 
For through him, being Christ, we both, being Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's writing that to Gentiles in Ephesus. He's saying there's no more alienation between you two, Jews and Gentiles. One, they're one. I know this is lost on us because we are Gentiles. And if anything, it feels like it's the other way around now. We're praying that the Jews would get saved, right? But in reality, you just don't let the, 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 the astoundingness of this pass you. Now there is one church, one body, that God has brought about. So how do we conclude this? Again, I don't have any imperatives for you. I don't have any, therefore, go do this and that. And there's a lot in here about racial reconciliation and about how we can become one through the gospel and things like that. But I just want you to think about, isn't God gracious that he would include us in Grant's Pass, Oregon, in his kingdom vision for this world? Isn't he gracious that he would bring all of these things about perfectly in order for one little moment, Peter hungry on a roof, getting a vision that would explode and the gospel would come all the way to Oregon, which is the ends of the earth, and here we are, included in his kingdom building. That's so incredible. Isn't he gracious? Isn't God brilliant that he could remind humanity um, of who he is and how he works? Isn't he patient that he would wait for us to be born? to repent, to come to him, that he would let us be part of his work, his story, his vision for this world. Isn't he gracious that he would let us be part of that? I'm just so thankful this happened, and I'm thankful that I'm part of it. And my prayer is that the gospel expansion from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria would happen in you. That's what I'm praying for. Everyone in this church, I'm praying that, that the gospel would be so explosive and so attractive and so valuable and so beautiful that it would just expand like leaven in our hearts and our souls and our heart. It would just burst out of us that I wouldn't have to come up here and say, guys, here's our evangelistic strategy because the strategy would be that you guys are just boiling over with joy because the kingdom of God is swelling up in you and it's overflowing into the city. The gospel was uncontainable in the book of Acts. Do you see that? It's uncontainable. It's exploding out to the nations. And that's what happens when God's kingdom begins to take root and grow in your life. It begins to expand. I'll end with this. Colossians 1.9, Paul prays for this church. He says, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, Gentiles, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those words, Paul is praying that they would grow within the hearts and the minds of his people that he is leading to where they would envelop the entirety of their lives.
And that's my prayer for us, that this reality would grow and it would expand, both in our lives and in our city. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite a couple friends up, and we're going to spend a few minutes having a conversation. So, um, Dave and Eric, do you guys want to come on up and, and grab a seat up here? Father, we just thank you so much for what you have done, what you are doing, both in this place and in the world. God, we're such a small part of what you're doing globally. God, we could not even imagine all that you are going to do, are doing. And we just pray, God, that we just get to be part of it, that we would just trust you, Lord, that we would trust you and let you grow and expand in this church in our lives, God. We thank you for the inclusion of the Gentiles, Lord, even though that seems like something that, that is so far removed from our daily lives, it is so important that we have been allowed to be part of your covenant community. God, thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so I told you guys, hey guys, how you doing? Welcome. Um, I told you guys uh, a few weeks ago that we were going to start something new for the next three or four months, um, and that was going to be interviewing some people both from this church uh, and from outside of this church uh, about things that God is doing in his kingdom expansion in Grants Pass. Okay, the kingdom of God is not just church, although the church is part of the kingdom of God. Does everybody understand that? Church is part of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is much bigger than just what happens on a Sunday morning or whatever. And God is doing mass, massive amounts of work in our city. So what we're trying to do is just be listeners, students, hearers of all that God is doing. And, and one of the things, Dave Brumbach, Eric Henderson, 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 um, just are, are part of our body. They're fairly new to our body, and they are already doing work, incredible work outside of the walls, more than just what we're going to talk about this morning, but we're going to start here. Um, over at the, um, the juvenile prison, which many of you guys may not even know was here. There's a juvenile prison here. Um, and so I wanted to, to listen to you guys because you guys come in and, and do ministry in that prison uh, weekly. Um, I think you go in multiple times a week. And so first of all, I'd just love to hear what is it that you guys do there and, and what is that place and how does it function within our state? Um, let's just kind of start there so we're kind of all on the same page. Um, yeah, so... Uh... I'd like to give just a backdrop that when you walk into that facility, you're coming into a land of a famine of fatherhood, okay? So I just want to have that understanding known. But we come in and we do a weekly visitation. You can come in any night you want, Monday through Friday, and it's a 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock visitation. You just sit in the day room with youth and talk to them about engines and computers and, you know, sports and whatever. You know, it's just kind of a time of building relationships. And then we have... And that gives us an opportunity to invite them to chapel service and so on, which we have on Sundays. Uh, at 4.15 it starts, and that's a one-hour service. Uh, so we have that every Sunday. And uh, then we do um, uh, special visitations, which uh, the staff and administration might send out a message to us saying, look, there's a youth in here that gets no letters, no visitors, uh, which is a statistic in there that 86% of the youth in there after six months of incarceration gets no visitors and no letters. It's just yeah. the end. And uh, so uh, we will then go on visitation day, which is when families can, can come and visit, um, and we will show up in that area and we will visit with that youth. And uh, uh, sometimes it's the only lifeline to the outside world that they have. And so uh, that's a very, uh, important role and the, the administration there acknowledges that this is uh, something that the visit, visit, uh, volunteers uh, accomplish for them. 
Um, then we also do uh, baptisms there. In 2018, we baptized 12 youth in there, full immersion baptisms. Um, That's awesome. 2019, we baptized 15. There's only about 100 youth there, too, right. so that's a big percentage. 15%. Yeah, exactly. And the second baptism, we had quite a <laughs> gathering of uh, staff there, off-duty staff watching the baptism. And, um, and that is another ministry thing we recognize as um, staff has an opportunity to go to that service and rotate out so other staff go in. But when we see a staff member in there and stay there, week after week after week and start getting closer and closer to the group and start participating in the group, God is working on a staff member too. So uh, God is working everyone uh, in that uh, chapel service. So then we do, um, there's Easter celebrations in each one of the units. There's four units there. Um, and then there's Christmas uh, celebrations they do. And then on Christmas Eve, we do uh, a burger celebration, a burger feast, and this year we got In-N-Out to uh, work with us, and we got uh, a burgers for all of the youth and all of the staff in that that's facility amazing. Christmas Eve. And then we do another thing that's really probably one of the best, I'd say that Christmas Eve burger feast, that and um, this birthday event where we go in uh, on birthday, which is May 1st, which is something done in all of the schools in here. About 10,000 kids get served uh, by Christian uh, men and women uh, to celebrate their birthdays. But that is one of the strongest uh, relationship-building things we do, where there might be ethnic or gang separations from us uh, regularly. We come in and serve that birthday ice cream and stuff like that. It's a game changer. All of a sudden, we're, a, we're friends, you know? And so um, it opens doors for us uh, relationship-wise. Uh, and, and some kids will say, you know, like, I've, I've never had my birthday celebrated, you know? It's the first time, you know, so. What is the, what is the um, what's the typical amount of time that these kids are in and what is their age? You know, I mean, tell us a little bit about that facility because I don't know that we, we fully understand even what, because this isn't just like a ju juvenile hall. No. This is this is a prison, yeah. right? For yeah. for you. So maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, too. it's a it's a high security prison. They've done crimes, and uh, I would say the youngest that I've ever seen in there is 13, but generally it's 14 to say 23. It depends on how they were adjudicated, and where they're at, whether they're Department of Corrections or whether they're OIA, which is Oregon Youth Authority. Are these typically kids that are going to end up being at some point transferred to, to actual adult prisons? Uh, no, most of them will, uh, you know, transition to uh, transition housing and uh, or uh, a lot of them will actually go back to their homes, you know, uh, okay. or a grandma or uh, an older brother or something like that. And they're know? from all around Oregon, right? This is all, all over the state. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like they have family locally. I mean, some of these kids have been taken from northern Oregon, whatever, you know, all the way down yeah. to this. So so how has this had an impact? Um, and maybe, Dave, you can speak to this. How has this had an impact both on, on you guys um, also on the kids which you've spoken to to some degree, but I'd love to hear just kind of what the fruit of this has been, even in your guys' own, you know, development in Christ as, as, as apprentices of Jesus doing this work. Um, what would you say about that? Uh, for sure, what Eric mentioned initially about there being an extreme deficit of fatherhood is, of course, accurate. I'll let him speak to that. That's just a huge area of impact in these youth's lives. Um, in terms of, I'll speak a little bit to the impact on me going in, I've gone in for 13 years, Eric's gone in for 20 some. Uh, Thank you. you know, somebody just invited me to go with them one day and I went and my heart was touched for people that I never previously cared about because I was near them. And uh, 
like you talked about the woman who touched Jesus and she was made clean. To me, it's, uh, I can hear all the sermons, as good as they are, or study the Bible, as important as it is, but unless I combine that with action, it's largely powerless in my life. But getting around Jesus as he is on mission in these kids' lives, he is moving into the least of these. And when I spend time with him as he is doing it, it, of course, just like the woman who was touched by Jesus and made clean, it, it makes me image my father, makes me become more like him. So um, it's huge. It's an absolutely, if, if any of you are saying, I'm, I'm learning about the faith, I'm learning about the Lord, I want to serve him more, but I don't feel like I'm being transformed, get around the least of these. Uh, God says, I dwell on a high and lofty hill, and also with him who is humble and contrite in heart. Uh, look for who he would be sending you to. Mm. And if you don't know that, read Matthew 25. It's a great passage about that. Mm. That's some of the impact in, in my heart. Yeah. So I love what you said, this, that, you know, it's when you get around people that you start to have a heart for them. I think sometimes we kind of wait, like, oh, Lord, if you give me this over, you know, overwhelming compulsion to go to this, this juvenile prison, I'll go. That's probably not going to happen. But when you sit down and look at their faces, it's like that with missions. You, know, you visit a country, all of a sudden you love that country. And you didn't love that country until you visited it and met those people. You know? and so sometimes there's just a, you just got to step in. So I mean, that's a good segue. You know, what, what are some of the ways that you guys need help over there? What are some of the ways that, um, that we can come along if anybody here was interested in joining that ministry, helping with that? And then if you have any, any other things you wanted to say. Uh, yeah, we, we need men. <laughs> we need fathers in that place. Uh, so whether you're a, a grandfather or a father or a future father, um, you've got everything you need. You're a, you're a believer in Jesus. That's, that's all you really need. Uh, what we can do is uh, take you in on what's called a one-time. So uh, some of people here have already done that, and they're in the process of uh, application. And um, but uh, you get to kind of, uh, you know, come in and experience it. Uh, Two-hour visitation or come in on a chapel service for one hour, uh, whatever you can uh, do. And that way you get to see it for real. Uh, it's far less intimidating than you might think it is. And from there, we just ask you to pray and ask God to confirm that you're to go there and, um, and participate. And we'll get you an application, get you signed up and, and, and run with us. So it's... Uh, um, it's open to any and all uh, people who think that they uh, uh, want to pursue that in, in reaching these youth. So they made it pretty easy in terms of just a first time. Right? You can just come in with you guys, not having to do the whole background check, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've, we've yeah. earned a great deal of trust yeah. with that facility, and they, they trust us to bring people in who are, yeah. you know, upstanding in the community. And, so, and, but if they want to come back... And continue to go, then they go through the process. That's which, correct. Which yeah. I'm sure is, yeah. I do right. have a, a word on that. If you're wondering, you know, like we go in and maybe we preach a sermon on Sunday, you know, or lead a discussion. You say, oh, that's intimidating. Or the first time I went, somebody asked me to lead worship. And like, <laughs> it's like, that was very intimidating to be sure. This week when I went in, I played Xbox, ping pong, and cornhole. So like that's, <laughs> if you're able to play cornhole, then you're qualified. That's awesome. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and how many kids come to the services that you guys do? And anywhere, anywhere between uh, 15 and 18 youth in there, plus okay. uh, two to three staff. Okay, yeah. super cool. Great. Cool. Well, you guys are available, uh, right? If you guys have questions and want to pick their brain anymore. Do you guys have any questions that maybe I didn't think of? Yeah. Do you have some sort of a brochure or card you know, like you give to people that 
Um, I can give you my, my phone number, and they can text me or call me anytime. Yeah, They're, we're a, a loose group of uh, uh, believers. Uh, we just call the volunteers there, and there's from maybe three different churches are represented in the in the group of guys that go in. Do you guys still have contact with some of these kids if they've, as they've come out or anything like that too? And well, uh, it's it's rare because there's only a handful of Rogue Valley uh, right. uh, inmates in there, and um, but occasionally we <laughs> walk into a store and it's hey Eric how you doing <laughs> you know and I look yeah. at him go like okay help me out here I, <laughs> trying to know, picture him with velcro uh, shoes and yeah I was like in that, Charlie but... unit remember you used to do chapel I went oh yeah, yeah <laughs> you know cool. so yeah, yeah I, I, then they tell you their story you know they got a job right. they're doing well they're keeping clean and That's so right. yeah it's yeah. cool to see that so cool. other questions. Yeah, good question. Yeah, it's all young men. All men, okay. Okay. Um, there's some sort of auxiliary help that women can do, like pills or, you know, education. You know, there's a, a couple of things. Uh, one would be um, uh, a prayer team for that facility. <laughs> to back up the volunteers to go in there. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a, a really good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondarily, I think during the parties, the celebrations at Easter and Christmas, those things come to mind. I'll be thinking about that more, uh, what else might be available. Um, that would be nice to have uh, gals come in and help facilitate those, those uh, celebrations, you know, mm -hmm. at Easter and Christmas. Uh, mm, that's all I can think of right now, though. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. There are a few uh, 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 gals in there uh, currently. It's kind of some grandma figures that the kids really, really like and respect. I think that's a, a place, um, yeah. It can be challenging if the ladies are younger. Uh, it's a can be a distraction, not always, but sometimes it's, yeah. Cool, any other questions? You guys, extend, extend a hand. We're going to pray for these guys, and, and and you guys represent a much larger team, obviously, right? I mean, there's how many how many people go in and do this work? Eight to twelve. So eight to twelve of, of these guys, and they're from churches all around. I mean, you know, Philippi, all kinds of different churches around the valley, and so we just want to pray for this team. Pray that that there would be fruit there. This is such. I've done some work in in, in um, places like this, and it's such an amazing opportunity because these kids really are at rock bottom, and they really are just open to seeing clearly and. Um, they're just pulled out of the mix enough that they're able to really think uh, to some degree more clearly than maybe they would, um, you know, at home. So let's, let's pray for these, these guys. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for this, this gospel opportunity, Lord. Uh, we, we thank you that you take the dark things um, and you turn them into light things. Just the fact that we have a juvenile prison here feels really dark. Um, but God, thank you for putting it here. Because in this city, there are people that love you and want to go into these dark places with the gospel. Um, Lord, we pray for these kids, God, that um, have made decisions, Lord, that are, um, unfortunately, Lord, have put them in this place. But we, God, we just pray for them that your gospel would penetrate their hearts, penetrate their minds, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be present, present in that place, bringing freedom, breaking down walls, God. Um, Lord, we pray for Dave and for Eric, Lord, we thank you for all the labor and all the years of sewing that they have put in that no one even knows about. God, these, just, these guys are just being faithful to their calling without a stage, without a, a platform, God, and just, and just going and doing
doing this work. So we pray you would rejuvenate them, that you would refill them, that you would give them a new and fresh excitement for this work. God, that they would just continue to labor uh, as, as shepherds and farmers, just planting the gospel patiently and faithfully, God. Um, give them the, the, just the continued heart for these kids, God. Help us as a church to come along, support, come behind, support. And if there's anyone in here, Lord, that you'd be calling into this work, I pray that you would make that evident even now in their heart, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give it up for these guys? <laughs> Amen.